You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Steve Hoffman to talk about practical strategies for starting a business, overcoming obstacles, and coming out on top. Steve is the chairman and CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators. He's also an angel investor, limited partner at August Capital, serial entrepreneur, and author of three award-winning books. Steve has also founded numerous other groups, successful startups, and even spent some time working in TV in Hollywood. You'll hear throughout this episode just how passionate Steve is about these topics, and he's clearly brilliant. You can hear in his voice and in his delivery that he's very passionate about everything we discuss, and he loves helping young entrepreneurs. Even if you're not interested in becoming a startup founder, this episode is packed with valuable information that can be used to invest better as well. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Steve Hoffman. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Millennial Investing. With me today, I have Steve Hoffman. Welcome to the show, Steve. Great to be here. Let's start the conversation by talking a bit about your background. Tell us who you are and how you got to where you are today. Well, that's a long story, but I can tell you. I have always been interested in technology, in money, and in the future, in what is happening. So when I first began, actually, I was thought I would be a filmmaker. So in high school, I'd been all about being creative. So I'd made over 50 movies by the time I graduated high school. I was all set to go to film school. But my father, who is an engineer, actually a rocket scientist from MIT, he told me, he said, you know, film was really tough. But I will tell you something. Computers are going to be running everything in the future. Everything. So you should study computers. Now, it wasn't my dream, but I went ahead and did it and because I was very good at math and computers. And I graduated with a degree in computer engineering. And then the minute I graduated, I decided now I'm going to film school. So for graduate school, I took off. I followed my dream. I went to film school. I got a master's degree. I worked in Hollywood. And then it just took off from there. After I worked in Hollywood, I got invited to go to Japan and actually design games. So that was another dream of mine because I was a huge gamer. So I was designing games in a big Japanese game company. And then I came back. I started my own game company. And that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. And it was really successful. So my first game company did quite well. We made this game that's still popular today. It's on Steam called Gazillionaire. And it's all about being an entrepreneur and actually how you make money. And I did that project. And then after that, the internet came along. It was a big internet days. And I jumped in with my friends and we started an interactive television company, kind of combining television, games, and technology all together, all the things I was passionate about. And then that was the first of three venture-funded startups I did. And then after the third venture-funded startup, I thought I was done and I was taking a break. And then all my friends started to come to me and said, Steve, Steve, can you help us with your startups? Can you help us? How do we raise money? How do we do get going? And 
I started to give them advice and help them out. Many of them were younger and it just kept growing and growing. And today we have Founders Space, which is an international startup incubator and accelerator. And I work with every year hundreds of entrepreneurs all over the world, many of them just out of college, some of them still in college doing their work, some in high school even. And they and I spend a lot of time not only investing or figuring out whether I want to invest in their companies, but also mentoring them and coaching them and helping them make really tough life decisions about their money, where they want to go, what they should be doing. And I love it. Even though it's a job and I work harder than I ever have in my life, I consider my kind of retirement because I love it so much. Like I just, I can get out there. Now with this whole COVID-19 thing, I'm still doing it from my home and talking to people like you. Yeah. There's so much there that I want to unpack that we'll talk about throughout this conversation. But we talked about this before the show a little bit. And then you just mentioned it there that you have a passion for helping younger entrepreneurs and investors. Why are you interested in helping younger generations? And what are you really trying to teach them? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I may not look like a teenager, but inside I still am. So I live my life every day and I've lived it all the time doing whatever I feel I want to do. So whatever excites me the most, whatever is the most passionate. And you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are very young and a lot of them have these big dreams, these ideas they want to get going. And to me, interacting with them is the most exciting thing I can do. So I not only want to help them for the help them's sake, but I will tell you, I learn more from the creative minds, the different people I work with, usually then I teach them. They don't know it, but when they're totally into something, like they're totally into cryptocurrency or they're totally into gene editing or they're into some brain computer interface technology, then sitting down with them and actually getting them to teach me about what their startup does and how they're doing it and how they're going to change things. And I end up learning so much. And that's so exciting to me that, of course, I just want to help them back. I consider it a fair exchange. We each have stuff to teach each other. And then every time I do it, I get better at what I do. And that just makes me want to do it more. So what exactly are you looking to teach millennials? A lot of what I teach, there's two sides to it. So a lot of it is practical advice. Like if you're young and you're trying to decide what to do with your life, I get a lot of millennials come to me and they're in college and they're saying, all my friends are talking about doing startups. Should I do a startup now? Or when I graduate, like, should I get a real job <laughs> instead of following this crazy dream? You know, more than like 95% of them fail. Should I do that? Or should I get a real job? And, you know, I look at them and I tell them, I say, it doesn't matter. Like you're going to fail a lot of times in your life, no matter what. You're going to take wrong turns. You're going to make mistakes. So you can do either. And the one thing I tell them that's more important than whether you join a big company or a stable job or whether you do a startup is make sure that whatever you do, you are learning and improving and growing. Because if in that job, if you get this amazing job offer, let's say from Google, and they're going to like really educate you and allow you to do something, work on amazing products and technology, and you are excited about that, you should take it. You should do it. I mean, it's like it's going to be an amazing experience for you. The day that job with whomever it is starts to become a bore, starts to become something where you're not really growing, you're not learning, you're not expanding yourself, then you should find something else to do, whether it's doing a startup, joining another company, 
And the same is true for startups. Like startups are great, but they're not for everybody. You also have to know yourself. Like if you go right out of college, like doing a startup is like super stressful. You're under a hyper amount of pressure. Some people, if you can deal with financial pressure, with pressure from people you have to basically beg to work for you because you have no money and all these other uncertainties, if you deal with that well, you are well cut out to do an early stage startup. If you aren't that, if that isn't your personality type, you may want to join a startup that's already going, that has raising money, that's growing and kind of get the experience without all the pressure being put on you. Or you may want to do a big company or be a doctor or a lawyer. There's so many paths through life and none of them are bad. It's just what you want to do. So are there certain people that you would recommend really goes towards the entrepreneurial path and people that you recommend should avoid it? Yes. So number one, in order to... There, there's some qualities I have seen repeatedly in entrepreneurs that define you know, who it's right for. Now, I will say one thing. Entrepreneurs aren't necessarily born. You can make yourself into an entrepreneur. I myself am not a natural entrepreneur. Like you may think so today because I've done so much of it. I spent my whole life doing it. But the reason I'm not is because, first of all, I I broke the first rule I don't handle stress well, or I didn't handle stress well in the past. Like when I was younger, it took me a long time to figure out how to deal with very chaotic, stressful situations. I like things organized. I like to have a plan. I don't like things to be out of control. And when you're doing a startup, things are always out of control. But I changed. I was able to overcome that. And now, like, I just don't get stressed. Like, I do now and then, but hardly ever compared to when I first started. Number two, there isn't one type of entrepreneur. Like, some people are very good at sales. And I was horrible at sales and all that stuff. Some people are very good at managing money. I was never that interested in the money side of things. I was actually the filmmaker, right? I wanted to do creative projects and kind of just stumbled my way when I started my game company, which was cool for me because I was designing these incredible games into being an entrepreneur. And then I had to learn everything the hard way because I wasn't naturally cut out for it. But the one thing I had and the one thing I see that's consistent with people who are entrepreneurs is number one, that even if it stresses them out, even if they don't have all the skills, even if they're poorly equipped for it, they love adventure. They love to challenge themselves. They don't mind taking a chance and try something. So that's number one. They're the type of person who's very curious, who's very interested, who's always pushing themselves to do more, to have new experiences. That's number one. Number two, they don't give up easily. So I failed. Like I had some companies that were successful, some that were failures. You know, I had projects that worked, projects that didn't, games that were big, games that flopped. But you just keep going. You're like, you will not stop because ultimately that's probably the biggest one. Like you have to have the curiosity, the desire to do something new. You have to be able to not give up part way because if you want to give up, it's not going to happen. And then the last quality that I see, if you, you can be a co-founder and not have this last quality, uh, but if you want to be the CEO, you really need this. And that is the ability to lead. Like there are certain businesses you can do on your own. Those are called more lifestyle businesses, and those are fine. You can do that without this quality. But if you're going to build a truly big business, like you're talking the next Google or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you're going to build the next big one. You have to have leadership because you cannot do it alone. You have to be able to bring other people in 
to motivate them, to steer them. That essential quality of leadership is the third pillar of being a great entrepreneur. How can somebody know if they actually have all of these characteristics? You never know at first. And, and you can develop these, by the way. Some of these, you can be an okay leader, but there are a lot of information out there, a lot of amazing books, a lot of amazing things and people you can learn from who can teach you to become better. Now, you need that drive, right? You can't be a lazy person. You're not going to do it. But how do you know, as you asked, how do you know if you have these? You only know by doing it, honestly. If you never challenge yourself, if you never put yourself in an uncomfortable position, you will never know what you're capable of. And the most important thing is if you fail in what you're doing and you don't get back up and start again and then fail again and start again, then you'll know you're not going to be an entrepreneur, right? Because it's not going to work. Like, I'll tell you, I'm a decent public speaker now. I do a lot of public speaking. But when I was younger, all the way through college, I was incredibly shy. So I actually was terrified to get in front of anybody to do any sort of sales presentation. God forbid I would do a talk. But what I did is I got up there and I forced myself to give talk after talk after talk. And I will tell you, I was God awful. I would be so nervous. I would be shaking. I would be scared. But every time I did it, I would evaluate what I did. I would go through what worked and what didn't work. And I would always try different things. And eventually, I got better and better and better. And now I can speak from sometimes 10,000 people as I travel the world. And it's not a problem. It's like the same as speaking one-on-one to me because I've done it so much. So my point is, like I said, probably the biggest thing was perseverance, like keep doing it no matter what. If you have that in you, you will figure out a way to succeed. Nobody can stop you. You may have many, many disasters along the way. But eventually, if you have somewhat of a brain, you will be able to figure it out. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, 
Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Now, do you think what it takes to become an entrepreneur can be taught or do you think it's something innate? And this question comes from... I had Gino Wickman here on the show a few weeks ago, if you're familiar with him. Uh, he was the author of Traction, the new book Leap, a bunch of other very popular entrepreneurship books. And he talks about how entrepreneurship can't be taught. So I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. Totally disagree. So, But everybody's entitled to an opinion and we're both probably wrong. No. <laughs> the reason I say we're both wrong is because in reality, nothing is black and white. So I have seen entrepreneurs who have been taught or taught themselves more likely to become a great entrepreneur. And then I have seen others who will never learn. So this is the reality. There are certain people who can't be taught. No matter what you teach them, they're never going to be a great entrepreneur. They literally will never do it, right? It goes against their personality. They will not change. Now, other people can be born a really awful entrepreneur, like I was born an awful entrepreneur. It took me a long time. So I was born like not naturally gifted, but I was so determined that I just kept hitting my head against the wall. And you hit your head enough against the wall and you either split open your head or you go through to the next room. And like I eventually got through to the next level and the next level after that by just being stubborn, but also being flexible enough to actually learn along the way. Now, the thing I will tell you is kind of a fundamental answer to this question is the thing is, are you the type of person who's open-minded enough and self-aware enough to actually teach yourself? If you are capable of teaching yourself, you could have been born a bad entrepreneur and you can become a great entrepreneur. If you're not really capable of adapting and changing and learning from your mistakes and from others, then forget it. So that's the real answer. It's somewhere in between and it's different for every person. And I'm glad you have that opinion. You mentioned right at the beginning that you completely disagree. And I'm glad that you do because I think I like to represent different opinions here on the show. I mean, if everybody agreed, that might be helpful because it could give people guidance. But then again, it's not going to apply to everybody. So I think it's good to hear the different opinions. And everybody listening to the show can hear Gino's opinion. It can hear your opinion and then make the best decision for them. And the same goes for stock investing. Certain people will recommend that people only invest in index funds. We had JL Collins here on the show, and he talks about only investing in index funds. And then we have other great individual stock pickers on the show. So 
it's really interesting to hear the different dynamics and I'm glad that you had that opinion. Now, I want to tell you an example of this. The question is, do you have to be super huge, right? Super fat in order to be a sumo wrestler, a successful sumo wrestler? The answer is, if you are super fat, if you are like have that body build, like this huge body, um, being a successful sumo wrestler is much easier. So if you're, if you're born with all the natural traits I've been talking about, and you know, you're great at sales, you're great at leadership, people just love you, blah, 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 you're brilliant. Yeah, being an entrepreneur is going to be so much easier. Like your chance of success, I'm not saying it like it's the same chance of success for everybody. It's going to be a lot easier. But even if you're not, you can push the limit. Reality is like when I was in Japan, I spent time there, I got into sumo, right? So one of the best sumo wrestlers in Japan was this little guy. He wasn't even big. He was little and he wasn't super fat, but he was very strong and he would use the other guy's big weight against them. So they would charge up to him and he would like move really quickly and they would fall over and fall out of the ring and then he would win. He was amazing, but he had none of the natural attributes you would associate with a traditional sumo wrestler. I think being an entrepreneur is the same way. You got to know your strengths, use your strengths, and where you're weak, you got to find ways to make up for it. And actually, jujitsu and all these things do that. In the real world, it's the same way. Now, some people can learn how to figure out, even if they're weak in a lot of different things, how to succeed, and other people, they just won't do it. I have to say, I think that was probably the first time I've ever had someone on the show use sumo wrestling as an analogy for entrepreneurship. But I actually, I really like that. I think it was a very good illustration as to the concept that you explained. I think that was really good. I liked it. Now, I want to dive into some of the investing that you're doing. A lot of the people that listen to the show today are really interested in investing. And so I want to talk about that. I know you have equity in close to over 100 startups. So the first question I have is, how did you even come across these opportunities? Were they part of your incubator program or did a lot of these come before you even started that? Some came before but the majority came after. So when I was doing my own startup, I was too busy to invest much. I was like so overwhelmed with like the million things you have to do when you're doing a startup that I was focused on that. But later when I began to help out friends and then it expanded, you know, I started a blog and people started founder space blog and people started to ask questions. I got a lot of people coming to me with their ideas. And of course, if it was a really good idea, I would want to invest in it. And when we started our program, I got a lot of shares from the companies joining our incubator and accelerator program. And I will tell you, investing in startups is hard. Most angel investors, and if a young person, a millennial wants to invest in a startup, they need to be careful. So what you have to consider is your first 10 investments are your learning experience. And it's better to always learn with other people. It's better not to learn always on your own because you know nothing. So one of my key pieces of advice to any millennial that's thinking of investing in startups is join an investors group. If you have the money, join a group of other investors. They have these angel groups here in Silicon Valley, all around the world that get together like Sandhill Angels, Bay Angels, there's tons of these angel groups. And what they do is they get together and they evaluate the startups together. In that process of hearing how other people evaluate the startups, you will learn so much about what makes a good investment and a bad investment. Because these people have been around the block. They have made a mistake. Many of my friends who just dove into investing, they have money, 
They ran their business well. They felt like they understood. If they were lucky, you know what they told me? They said, Steve, my first 10 investments, I lost money on nine of them. I made money on one. And I was so lucky that one made enough money for me to break even. That was the lucky ones. The unlucky ones, they didn't make money on any of them because it's really hard. It's hard for professional investors. You always read about you know, the guy who invested in Twitter early and then it just made him a billionaire and all these things. But for most people, it's not that easy. And I could talk for hours on the criteria you use to evaluate startup companies. But my biggest piece of advice is get with more experienced people and do it together with them. And then if you can't find, if you don't have an angel group in your area, get together, form one and get your friends in there, get other business people in there. Eat more minds figuring this out together and read a lot and watch videos from people like who are investors. Learn as much as possible. Don't think you know it and invest small amounts of money, small amounts of money at the start, just kind of for fun. Like if you're learning to play poker, you're not going to go all in with all your life savings on your first poker game. You're not going to think that you can beat these poker champions doing it. Don't think the same way when you are investing in companies. Just give it little bits of money, experiment, have fun. It's like a small poker game. If you win, you probably won't wind up retiring off that win, but you also won't wind up squandering your whole money so that you can try many, 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 many times and you will get better. So let's dive into some of that investment criteria that you look for in startups. I'm, I'm curious to learn more about that. I'm sure the audience is going to be as well. So how did you decide which companies to invest in and what exactly were your investment criteria? So I have a number of criteria. So I have 10 criteria that I use, but I will only go over the most important ones here. Now, number one, when I look at a startup, I, the first thing I look at be above and beyond anything else is the team, the people. Because I will tell you, at the end of the day, the people will, you could have the most, a person can come in, a, an entrepreneur can come in with the most incredible idea ever. But if that entrepreneur's team is not good, they will fail to execute on it. They will not be able to bring it to market in a way that the product is any good. Maybe their idea was good, but it's a huge step from the idea through implementation. So the idea is like 10%. I mean, the idea sets the direction, but whether you actually achieve the goal is a whole nother thing. So the idea, you can start in the right direction. Now, the thing about startups that's crazy is what seems like a good idea at the beginning, more often than not, is a bad idea. It's like actually not the right idea. Like you look at companies like YouTube and you're like, oh, those guys, they started this company and they were so successful. How did they come up with the right idea at the beginning? Well, the fact is, no, most people don't know this, but YouTube was a dating site, a video dating site. You know, nobody likes to date by video and it totally failed. And it was only later when they figured out they could use the same technology to allow people to share videos that they actually took off. And the same was true for Twitter. Twitter was an early podcasting site, you know, before it was really big and they were too early and they were failing. And that's when they came up with Twitter. You go on and on and on. Facebook was like a hot or not site, a site kind of like another type of dating site, which became a social network. All of these things, people, what we call iterate or pivot along the way. But the thing that's consistent usually is the team. Are they the type of people that I described earlier? Like, do they have that natural curiosity? Are they trying different things? Are they analytical? Are they able to learn from their mistakes? If you talk to the people and you're really impressed with them, 
the chance of that company succeeding, especially when it's an early stage company, not later, is much, much higher. So I've had teams come to Founder Space, and some of them, I'm just like, wow, these people are amazing. This team is amazing. I don't even like their idea, but I'm going to take a chance on them. More often than not, they succeed than another group that comes in and they have what seems like a pretty cool idea, but their team just isn't all there. Now, if you're looking at the CEO and you're saying, how do I know if this CEO is great? Like they went to Stanford or Berkeley or MIT. Is that a good thing? Well, yes and no. I mean, it shows that they could get into those universities. They must have some brains. They could apparently do pretty well on test scores. But does everybody who goes to Stanford or Berkeley or MIT, are they all cut out to be entrepreneurs? No. Some of them would be better off being professors or researchers or doctors or something else. It doesn't mean they have the skills to be an entrepreneur. I mean, you look at many of the great entrepreneurs out there, like Jack Ma, who founded Alibaba, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. He went to a no-name college and barely got through. So there you go. You know, And there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who didn't go to these Ivy League or top-tier universities who turn out to be much more natural entrepreneurs, much better, and the others should be academics or something else. So the school isn't everything. Can you tell if they worked at Google or Twitter or, or you know, Facebook, are they the right people? Well, there's a t- those are huge organizations with hundreds of thousands of employees. Not every one of them is cut out to be an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter if they were the vice president. They may be perfect in a big established company, but that doesn't mean that they have what it takes to to be an entrepreneur, and often they don't. The one thing I look at, I do give credit to their background. So if they have a good background, naturally it means something. But the thing I look more deeply at when I look at them, I ask them, how do you solve your problem? And I ask them about their business. And if they are the type of person where they can really articulate very clearly to me how they think, like for answer, like who is your customer? And they start to tell me how they got to know their customer, how they figured out what they need. I see how their brain works. Then I start to say, wow, this person could really learn and figure things out for themselves. That's number one. Number two, I asked them about their past. Did they have the leadership skills? Were they the head of any organizations or clubs? And what did they do? How did they recruit people? It could have been on the college campus. It could have been in high school. I don't care. I just want to see if they have that ability and if they've used it. Did they push themselves? Did they do these things that I think are essential? And then thirdly, the most important thing, I look at the people they've surrounded themselves with. Who did they bring on their team? Did they bring people on their team that are just anybody they could find, like they could just, they were desperate, they just got somebody? Or are these people amazing people? Like they could have founded their own companies or they could have been working for Google for a six-figure salary, but instead they chose to join this other entrepreneur and basically forfeit all the other opportunities because they believe in that person. That shows me, like a lot of entrepreneurs will tell me, they'll come alone and they'll say, I don't have a team or I've just hired some contractors. And I'll say, you know, and they'd say, how can you expect me to have a great team? I have no money. Who's going to join me for no money when I have just these shares in the company, but the company is nothing? I turn back to them and say, that's your job. If you're going to be a great leader, if you're going to show that last skill, leadership, leadership is about getting somebody who could have a job at Facebook or Google or Microsoft and getting them to give up that job, quit that job and come join you because they believe in you. 
if you can do that, if you can show me you can lure those people into your world vision and give them something that they believe in, then I believe in you. Like that's your test. That's the litmus test. So I look for all these things combined. And that is just my first criteria. Tell us a, a few more. I'd love to okay. learn more. I'll tell you a few more. So criteria number two, I look at their product. Now, it doesn't have to be fully built out. It can be in a PowerPoint. Hopefully, it's a prototype. Usually, I like to invest in a prototype or beyond, or it's in the marketplace. But I look at their product and I ask them, why would somebody... You know, There's always another solution out there, always. Whatever you've invented, no matter how novel and new, somebody else has been doing things. We've been around on this planet for a long time. We figured out how to solve most of our problems using older tools, right? So why using your new service or your new product? What are you doing better? Now, if they tell me my product is like all my competitors, but it has this feature and this feature and this feature, then I'm not interested. Why? Because features make a product incrementally better. Like they make a product a little better. Oh, you have an extra feature. That's nice. I don't want features. Nobody switches. If you told me we're using Meetup right now to conduct this interview, and I'm happy with Meetup, right? I like it. If you told me uh, there's another software out there that is like Meetup, but it has this extra feature, most people aren't going to switch. We're just like, we already know how to use this. We're already using it. In order to be successful, a product has to offer a fundamentally different value to the customer that that customer isn't getting from whatever's already on the market. If it just makes it a little better, nobody's going to bother because people have inertia and they won't move. For a startup to break through, and it's really hard to break through, we read about all the success stories, but you never read about the failures. And it is extremely hard to break through. But in order to break through, you can't just improve upon what people have. You have to have two things. And this is what I look for. You either have to be exponentially better, meaning that this product is so much better than everything else out there that, of course, I'm going to switch. So at the beginning, when Google launched, there were 19 other search engines way ahead of them. There was AltaVista, InfoSeq, all these search engines out there. I remember using those. But when Google launched, their new algorithm for finding results made the others look prehistoric. Literally, their page ranking algorithm was so much more effective that you always wanted to use Google. So they were exponentially better than everybody else. And that allowed them to rocket ahead. Everybody just switched. Otherwise, they wouldn't have switched. The only other way is to be different, to offer something that nobody, a value that nobody else is getting from the other products in the marketplace. If the startup does this and they're using technology so that they can enable people to do something they couldn't have done before, and it could be entertainment value, it could be productivity value, it can be bringing in more revenue to their company. If they offer this additional value, that can be enough. If it's really valuable, right? Not just sort of valuable, that can be enough. And that's my second criteria. If I can see either of those things, I start to get excited about the company. I'd like, they have something here. So let's talk a bit about what is a disqualifier for you? When you're talking to founders or you're looking at a company, what are the types of things, like what are the characteristics that you see and that's an immediate red flag and you're like, I'm out. I don't want to invest in this company. There's so many things. So number one, if they say there's no competition, they're out. That means they haven't done their homework. That means they're either lying to me because they've looked in this competition and they don't want to show me so that they're not being honest, which is bad because we need to have an honest relationship. You need to tell me 
why you're better. If you're not showing me your competitors and showing me detail by detail why you're superior, I can't even evaluate your startup. Number two, there is no competition. It means that if there's no competition, and there always is competition, it means there's no business. That's why nobody else is doing it. There's no solution because nobody cares. Nobody cares about I've had a company like that. Like we started a company and we were like working on it and working on it. And then all of a sudden we realized that there was another company out there who had done pretty much what we were doing and they were the only one we could find and they had failed. What did that tell us? That told us we better not do it. We're just going to go down the same path they went down. Consumers don't want this. That's why there's no competition. So you should get very worried if there's no competition. Number one, red flag. Number two, small market, like literally venture firms and even angel investors, you need a big market. Look, investing is risky. You're going to lose. Most of the bets you place on early stage startups aren't going to pan out, like I said before. But if one of them hit big, if one of them like IPOs, that's where you make all your money. And it's not just angel investors. Every large venture fund knows that they could have 20 startups in their portfolio. And one of those companies is going to make more money than all the others combined. That's the math. That's just how it works out because it's so hard. And when something works and it's in a big market, it goes. So if the market is small, if the market is constrained, it would be like trying to grow a whale in a fishbowl. It's just never going to work. You're never going to get a whale out of a fishbowl. You know, it isn't a big enough environment. So we need to see a lot of customers willing to pay a lot of money. And if that isn't there, we're out. If the entrepreneur doesn't have a good team, I mentioned we're out. If the entrepreneur Technology-wise, there are times when I look at the technology and the entrepreneur will have spent forever on this technology. They'll filed all these patents. They'll have been working on the technology for years. And then I ask the entrepreneur, who is your customer? Who will actually buy this product? They're like, they don't want to talk about it. They just want to talk about the technology. I know that company is not going to go anywhere because either there are no customers or this person fundamentally isn't capable of even thinking about customers. And a technology alone never wins. Like I always say, technology is worth nothing unless somebody wants it. It's not the technology that's valuable. What's valuable is what the technology can do for the customer. That's what's valuable. So if you can't prove that to me, if you can't show me how this technology translates into providing value for customers, then you have no business. You just have technology. You might as well be in a research lab or a university, which is great, which is probably where you should be. And which is where many of these inventors are. One thing people get confused is they think entrepreneurs are inventors. Well, entrepreneurs aren't inventors. Usually they might be inventive and they are definitely innovative. They are like innovating, but innovating and inventing a new product are different things. When you invent something like a new core technology, that out of a research lab, that usually takes 10 on average, it's like 20 years from the time they invented transistors until we saw really useful computers or the time they first had the first AI algorithms to the time where those AI algorithms actually produced any results. It's decades. So inventing something is not the important thing. The important thing that an entrepreneur does is take technology, whether they invented it or not is irrelevant, but they are the first ones to take it and identify how this technology can be used to solve really hard problems in the world for real people and real businesses. That's what matters. So if I go there and it's just a technology, I'm out. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? 
Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So let's talk about how an investor actually makes money in investing in a startup. You briefly mentioned through an IPO is one of the ways, but there's very few startups that actually make it to that point. And you talked about how sometimes you can invest in 10 companies, nine of them will fail, you'll lose all your money, but then that one company will make enough for you to still be break even or even profitable. And then given that most startups aren't profitable, you're not getting monthly cash flow, most likely you're not getting any dividends or anything like that from the company. So how do you actually make a return when you're investing in a new startup? 
So there are a number of ways to make a return, but you really almost never make money unless the startup does one thing, and that's called an exit. An exit is when those shares that you own as an investor are sold to somebody else. Now, you can have different exits. Like you could be an early investor and sell your shares to venture capitalists, right? So some big venture capitalist firm comes in or a PE firm comes in and they buy up all the shares and they want to buy your shares, you can sell them. But usually you're better off holding on to those shares. If there is a well-established venture firm that is willing to pay you for those shares, that means they expect those shares to grow a lot. And unless you know something that they don't, you should probably hold on to it because they, they, they might, they're going to be able to give the company the capital to get to the next level. The best exit is when a company is acquired. We always read about it. Big corporation, Fortune 500 company steps in and buys a startup for a billion dollars. You know, That's an exit. Or if the startup goes IPO. So if a startup usually doesn't get acquired or doesn't go IPO, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, especially for venture-backed startups, you will never see a penny. Because when they shut down, usually it's at the point where they have no money. And usually the IP, like I said, the technology, the intellectual property that they've developed, when a startup is closing, that's a fire sale. They're usually selling, it barely pays off whatever debts they had, if it does that. So startups are sort of binary investments. Usually you'll either make a lot of money or you won't make much at all. And that's why most investors, like they invest on a 10-year horizon because the reason they need 10 years is could they sell those startups earlier? Well, the winners, they could sell earlier, but they don't want to. If the startup's onto something, if they have what we call traction, if they're growing really fast, the last thing they want to do is sell it during that growth spurt. They want to hold on to it and let it reach maximum value. And then they put it on the public market and let the public buy it or let a big corporation step in and pay a premium and buy it. When they sell a startup, they don't want to sell it for what it's worth today. They want to sell it for what it will be worth. And there's sort of a curve, right? And you, as an investor, you want to hit the maximum point on that curve, the maximum for the time you invested and the money you invested, the maximum return. So that's what VCs are always juggling. Now, it's always a risk because you could have, you know, the startup could, the market could change. There could be a financial meltdown. There could be all sorts of things that happen that, or another competitor or new tech with a new technology could emerge and displace them. All these things happen. So exiting is a sure bet, right? But do you take your money off the table too soon or do you let it ride, you know, and get the big payoff at the end? And that's what investors are always juggling. If you're a typical angel investor, you're probably not on the board of directors. So you're not going to be involved in making those decisions. But you may be. If you were early in the company, if you secured a board seat, you may be involved in helping steer and guide the company. And I always say to investors, you know, either, you, you know, don't invest in startups that you don't think will be huge. Because if you don't think they'll be huge, it's very unlikely other investors are going to come in and uh, keep giving this company money. So as soon as they hit a road bump, as soon as they hit a hard spot where they really need money, they're just going to die because no other investors will step in. Only the companies that are growing rapidly are the ones who are, are, have a high probability of securing money, more money, or ones that can reach profitability. But the last thing, and this is really important, probably my most important point for angel investing, there are two different types of angel investors. 
There are angel investors who do venture investments, which is what I'm talking about. Venture investment mean that that can grow potentially into a unicorn, a billion or multi-billion dollar company. But there are other types of investors that might invest in a local restaurant. They might invest in a laundromat. They might invest in, you know, these are generally not good investments unless you completely control them yourself. Because what they end up with is you end up giving the whoever started the restaurant money to start the restaurant. And unless you have some guaranteed a sort of profit or revenue sharing, you may you won't see any money. Like they will keep all the money, right? Because what rest most restaurants, unless they become this huge chain, don't sell for anything. They just close down at some point. So you're just funding their lifestyle. That's why in Silicon Valley we call it lifestyle. You don't want to be a lifestyle investor. First of all, the, the multiple on returns are far less. So you're still taking a huge risk on a small business, but with the upside is much, much smaller. So I just tell people, unless it's your restaurant, I recommend not investing in it, or unless it's some famous chef and they've guaranteed you ironclad, you have to have lawyers go over this, like some sort of revenue share in there where you're going to get paid back really well for the risk you're taking. Because I will tell you, any the, the amount of risk you take in investing in a small business, like any small business, and, and, and one that could be a huge business is about the same. The risk is about the same. But the ones that can become huge business, you have an exponentially higher upside. So uh, the risk versus return ratios are completely different. You need to take this into account. And you mentioned the restaurant space. You mentioned a couple others. Are there specific industries or sectors or company types that you like to invest in? Yeah. So there are different uh, categories. Now, I'm a tech investor. So when I invest, I typically, but not always, but typically I, use, I invest in companies that are leveraging new technology that give them a, a, a strong competitive advantage. Like when they go into the marketplace, they, they are, you know, all the existing, the incumbent players are at a disadvantage compared to what they have and they're moving fast. That's what I look for. But you know, there are many types of investments out there. Like you could invest in real estate. That's something I'm not talking about. It's totally different. In real estate, I always say, if you're an investor, the more control you have over the investment, the better in some cases. My feeling is in certain investment sectors, there are a lot of different sectors you can put your money in. So there's hospitality, there's food technology, there's just the food business. There are some commonalities. Now, you don't have to use technology to invest and become a really good company. Let me give you an example. So there was a company of this guy and he was distributing this clothing. He was like doing kind of sports clothing up in Canada. He was mildly successful. He had some failures. But then he figured out one thing. He figured out women really want yoga clothing. They really want this. And he was at just the right time. He caught this, what I call a wave. It's a trend, right? He caught the trend of just at the beginning of the whole yoga movement, and he made Lululemon, which you've probably heard of, the famous yoga brand, right? But he was the first one out there who really targeted these yoga women and made it really a great product just for them. And then it just spread virally. Even if you weren't into yoga, you were buying Lululemon because it was cool. It was hip. He had built a brand. Now, would have that been a great investment for me? Yeah. Of course, it would have been an amazing investment. And there are restaurant chains that can do that. There are other businesses. But what you have to look for is what do they see? What insight do they have to the market that other people don't have? So it can be a fairly traditional business like clothing or food 
or hospitality, but they have to have some insight that the other people are ignoring, the big players are ignoring. They're not meeting that market demand. I always like to say of entrepreneurs, the hardest thing you ever do as an entrepreneur is not to create a great product. That comes second. Like that's later because you can have the best product in the world. And if nobody wants it, it means nothing. The hardest thing you ever do is hunting for extreme demand where there's an unmet demand in the marketplace because the market has changed, like yoga became popular. And you can come in with a solution that you can create for those customers. If an entrepreneur has figured this out, everything else usually takes care of itself. Like that is the hardest thing they do. Because we're recording this when we are, we couldn't have a podcast interview without at least talking about it. So I want to hear how the coronavirus pandemic is impacting Silicon Valley and also just startups in general. I mean, with startups relying so much on capital, it's probably pretty easy for them in the last few years that we've been experiencing. You know, capital is pretty easy to come by, especially in the venture world. And during times like this, the venture capital starts to dry up. Angel money starts to dry up a little bit. So I'm curious to hear how startups in the Valley are being impacted. Right now with the coronavirus, it's a tough time. Like It's tough for everybody. I mean, we're all in our homes. Imagine you're running a startup. You're like trapped in your home. Now it's harder for some than others. So for some that do offline, that work offline with, they run events or they do things like that, it's murder, right? <laughs> you're like, you're like literally your whole business goes to zero. It's very, very tough time. For others that work with people who do offline, like there are some tech startups that work with restaurants and retail stores. For them, it's brutal because all their customers are now not spending on technology. They're cutting their costs. So you look at like Yelp, they just laid off a thousand people. That's just one example. Other businesses are more immune to that. And some are doing well, like Zoom that we're using now for this. If it weren't for the security issues, they would be on top of the world because this is a perfect situation for them. And Amazon, look at Amazon, right? It's no longer a startup and neither is Zoom, but they started as startups and companies like in e-commerce and things like that, they're doing better than ever. This has actually been a boon to their industry. So it really varies. Now, funding-wise, it's brutal because investors want to meet you face-to-face. They really don't want to invest because they met you on a Skype interview or a Zoom interview or whatever and talked to you. Somehow, even in today's world of high technology, people want to meet people face-to-face. That's how we feel we really know somebody. And like I said before, it's a people-driven business. You want to know the entrepreneurs. So most investors, even if they say they're actively investing, they are not as active as before. They are holding off. Also, there's a great amount of uncertainty. They don't know. Nobody knows, like, you know, the stock market is up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And we don't know what the next six months will hold. And in uncertainty, especially when there's a long time horizon and so many opportunities to die along the way, which is startups are very fragile. In a down economy, big companies like Microsoft and Google, they're going to be fine, right? They're going to survive. They're not going to go bankrupt. But in a down economy, startups get murdered, right? So if you're an angel investor, you're being very cautious right now. If you're a later stage investor, you're investing in more in companies that have a lot of growth and you can see that they're going to rebound and they have the resources to handle this, then it's a much safer bet to continue to invest in them. And maybe it's a good time because their valuation might be less. So we're seeing this dynamic play out. And for the most part in Silicon Valley right now, investment is on hold until people get out of their homes. Then it'll pick back up and we'll see a lot more activity. There's still investment going on, especially deals that were already in the pipeline. So you read about now deals are closing, 
But those deals have been in the works for a lot of times several months. They've been working on those deals and they're just now coming to fruition and being announced. So what really tells in three months from now, how many deals do we see? Then we're going to know the true market, not the deals you're reading about today. That is where we're at. So most people listening to the show today are newer investors, and they likely can't invest in startups the same way that you have and continually do to this day. But an alternative that is available is crowdfunding. So they can invest in startups through crowdfunding. What do you think about millennials investing in startups via crowdfunding websites? Is that a good option? I think using crowdfunding websites is a great option. In fact, I encourage investors. I use like AngelList, which is a crowdfunding site for angel investors. And you can learn so much on those sites, watching what other more experienced investors do and participating in those rounds. Again, you have to be careful. Start off with small amounts of money. Play small bets and learn. First of all, it makes it more fun to put your own money down rather than just pretend to invest. Put a little money down. But a lot of these crowdfunding sites will allow you to invest as little as like $1,000, sometimes even less in these companies. Usually like 1000 is the minimum. But the problem is even $1,000 is a lot to a young person, right? So you're like, oh, it's only $1,000. I'm saying that, right? Because I've been around longer. I have more money. But for most young people, like, wow, I had 1000 That was like all my money. And that's part of the issue that they're going to come up against. Now, you also have to remember, it's not like you're investing in a stock. Like a stock, if you get desperate, you can sell it and get your money back. But when you invest in a startup, that money is tied up for a lot of times, like I said, the lifespan of most of these startups till you see a return could be 10 years, sometimes longer. Like these companies, they seldom get bought or go public quickly. The better they are, the longer they take. And if they're really bad, they never make money. So you're kissing that money goodbye. Now, as a young person, I will tell you the best investment you could ever make, ever make with your money, your education, your growth. If you are investing in yourself, you are the best investment. That investment is going to pay off. Why should you take your hard-earned money if you don't have a lot of it, if you didn't inherit a trust fund or something like that, or make a billion on cryptocurrency? If you aren't one of those millennials, why don't you take what little money you have and put it into you? Because you are going to get double benefits. Instead of giving your money to make somebody else's dream come true, save your money invested in what you're working on. If you have a dream of becoming something, learn and read and take courses and for a small amount of money, a few thousand dollars in savings, you're going to get a much bigger bang out of that than putting it into some startup and waiting 10 years to see what happens. You're not going to learn much or get much out of putting all your money into that. But it doesn't hurt for you to go on crowdfunding sites and study them, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur or an angel investor in the future. You can go and study and track these companies without putting your money in, while at the same time investing as much money as you possibly can into yourself in your own career. I think that's great advice. And I think it's interesting that you have that advice because we had someone similar to yourself, similar background to you on the show a few weeks ago, James Altucher. And he's also a very big angel investor. And he talked about the same exact thing. He said that the best piece of advice he would give is investing in yourself first. The returns you can get by investing in yourself is just unprecedented. And you can't earn those returns in any other asset class, whether it's stocks, bonds, mutual funds, angel investing, startups, it doesn't matter. The return you get on investing in yourself, whether it's a course or a new skill, is unmatched. And even saving your money so that it buys you time, right? So that you don't have to go and take a job right away. Like if you have a savings account, 
and you have some money in there and you can live several months, that allows you to hunt around for a better job instead of taking whatever job comes to you first, which might and probably is not the best job you could get. The more time you have, the better. And that job is going to be instrumental in your career path. You would be surprised how much a single job, the difference it can make in where you end up because the people you meet on that job, the quality of the people, what you're doing, everything, every step you take leads to another step. So if you are going to step, just take whatever, really smart people don't take whatever's easy or convenient. Really smart people look at what they want and plot it out. What do I need to do? And they are willing to sacrifice in the beginning. They're willing to sacrifice because they don't put this money into stocks. They don't put this money into startups. They don't put it into real estate. They're using the money so that they can have the time and make the decisions that in the long run will really benefit them the most strategically. Like going back and getting a a graduate degree can make an enormous difference. Just the pay and the amount of responsibility you get from going from like an undergraduate degree to a master's or a PhD over the course of your lifetime, enormous value like way more than you could get on most stocks for the money you invest. Or taking courses. You don't have to pay to go to a graduate school. You could just read more books to go out there and experiment with stuff or even volunteer to do a job. Like instead of just jumping in to a job, say, I want to do a one-month internship with them. Like I'll volunteer. They don't have to pay me anything. I just want to go figure out if I even like this business before committing. Yeah, I'm not saying I am super smart by any means, but I've done very similar things in my career. I actually got my first job out of college and then I had an opportunity to go somewhere else. And it was actually a step down in pay, but I thought the opportunity was very large for me. I thought long term, I said, this is going to be a very good move for my career. I'll consider this like a quote unquote investment. Maybe I'm making a little bit less in the short term, but in the long term, I think it will lead to more. And then the reduction in my pay is that investment. And within a year and a half, it led to a significant increase. I doubled my salary in a new position. And I said I was thinking for the long term, which I was. It ended up only being a year and a half, two years later. But it's worked for me personally in my career. Exactly what you said. I've, you know, I went on to get a graduate degree. I didn't really want to do that per se. I was 16 years of school. I was done. I was ready to be finished. But I decided to push through for those two final years to get my MBA. And I've done very similar to exactly what you said with both graduate degrees and my career. And I think it's been very helpful for me. So I think that's fantastic advice. And Steve, I know there's so much more that we could talk about. I could talk probably for hours like you could and enjoyed learning all about the Valley and also startups, how to invest in them, how to make money, how to make money as an investor in them. So we'll definitely have to have you on the show to talk about that more. But for those listening today that want to go connect with you after the show, where can they go? Just come to founderspace.com. You can contact us there. We actually have an online program, a three-month online startup program. It's very cheap, especially for students. We make it very cheap. But if you can't afford it, for whatever reason, we'll give it to you for free. Like You just have to ask us because I believe everybody should have an education. And if you don't have the money, we don't ask any questions. We just support you. I also have two books. You can get them on Amazon or anywhere else. They're audiobooks and Kindle and all that stuff. My first book is Make Elephants Fly, which is all about how to get your big idea off the ground. The elephant is your dream, that thing you want to do. And making it fly, it basically shows you step-by-step how entrepreneurs have done it. And then my new book, it's being published by HarperCollins. It's not out yet, but it's called Surviving a Startup. And it's basically everything you need to do to survive. And hopefully, after all my experience at all the startups I've worked with, wind up on top. 
that sounds like a great program that you're offering. And it's awesome that you're giving it away for free for people that can't afford it. I think that's amazing. I think it's very noble. I'll also put links to the books and resources that you just mentioned in the show notes so that everybody listening today can go check those out, learn more about what you got going on and dive more into your content. Steve, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.